So I can remember the conversations I would have with my neighbor Chuck. Uh, Chuck lived across the street from us in Mount Prospect, a really nice older gentleman. He had uh, sadly lost his wife some years before that. She had been a, an active uh, member and, and believer in Jesus at our church in, there at, at St. Paul. And being just a, a block or so away from church, Chuck uh, was not much of a churchgoer, to say the least. In fact, as uh, I got to know him a little bit in, in passing before he had moved away to be closer to his, his kids, one of the things Chuck made very clear to me, he says, yeah, there's a reason why I don't come to church. And I said, well, what is that? He says, because I think it is insulting intellectually to believe that God actually created the world. And I said, oh, okay. Said, he said, you realize, he said, it is not intellectual at all to even suggest that there's room in this world for God. I mean, come on. And he said, and he, he would start quoting me some of the scientific journals that he would read regularly and some of the recent research and, 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 and uh, discoveries that were made. And he'd say, see, it, it continues to prove that there is no such thing as God and the idea that God created anything is a joke. He says, everyone knows that evolution is the way it is. And that is truth. And, and I learned very early on that... Um, Talking to Chuck, debating and arguing with him probably wasn't going to get anywhere. And, and maybe you found this on this topic, that when you get in a discussion with people, this becomes a very passionate one for a lot of people. And, and one thing we need to, to just pause on as we get into this myth today, that science has disproved the existence of God, arguing the points and, and getting people angry and fuming mad at us probably isn't going to be the best approach on this one, as in any, any witnessing opportunity. Uh, we're not there to argue and, and just make people angry. That's usually the problem of why people don't listen to Christianity or people who believe in the Bible very much is because we've taken that approach of, of, of really condemning the culture and not even talking to people where they're at. And you think of that verse from 1 Peter, it says, you know, always be prepared to give an answer for the, the hope that you have, but do it with gentleness and respect and that is key and I think in this topic and this subject that we face today same kind of thing gentleness and respect in order to get a hearing now there's a lot to dwell on today um, I want to just read this quote this gives you just a, a sense of our culture I, I used this quote a couple weeks ago as well and it, it fits as well here from John Loftus a self-proclaimed atheist he'd written a book about the Bible and the traditions of, of faith being irrelevant and uh, scientifically incorrect. And here's the quote. Um, let's just face it. The Bible and the people who produced it were barbaric and superstitious. The only redeeming qualities about the Bible or the Christian tradition are those things that civilized people agree with about them. And hence, they are irrelevant to modern scientifically literate people. In other words, to believe in God is to commit intellectual suicide that's really what's being said out there today to believe in God is to commit intellectual suicide you gotta basically check your intellect in and at the door in order to worship in order to know God in order to read the Bible is intellectual thought has no place in the realm of theology in fact I even remember another neighbor when we'd have this conversation and she said oh yeah I had a cousin that went off to the seminary uh, because he loved theology because there are no right answers 
He said, she could have, he could have studied, you know, science and all the other things. Very smart guy, she said, but he studied theology because there are no right answers. And I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> are you kidding me? You know, maybe we're not too far off from the culture of Pilate just saying, what is truth, really? You know, here's another quote, but this one from Scripture. Let's read this one together. For since the creation of the world... God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. It's from Romans 1, uh, verse 20. And, and that's a great quote when you think about what's being said here. Paul's inspired by God, and what is he getting at? He's saying, you know, the natural order of things, creation as it stands, God's invisible qualities are actually apparent from the creation. We, we often kind of dismiss that, and, and I love this about our theology as Lutherans. We run to the cross as fast as we can, and, and rightly so. That's the essence of our redemption and our salvation is found in what Jesus has done for us on the cross, and rising again to new life gives us new life. But what Paul is saying to the outside world that doesn't know that truth, there's also another truth that's being revealed that is leading them to, to seek more. And that is the essence of creation. That God actually reveals himself in the created world, in the created order of things. And sometimes that gets pushed aside or, or thought, oh, come on, what, you, you can't learn about Jesus' love by, by studying biology. Well, maybe not, but you can learn that God is incredible. And, and God is a designer, as we're going to see, is amazing. Um, but to get there... First of all, we've got to take an approach that, that I'd like to suggest to you, what if? What if, rather than the culture that says that science disproves God, what if God actually proves that he exists through science? What if? And I'd ask you if you come here today and you're a skeptic, because it's possible. I know these, a lot of you have been sending out these topics and they've been getting out there. Maybe you're here today and, and you're here because you're one who's skeptical of this whole topic. I would just pray, keep an open mind. Um, as, as Linus uh, Pauling once said, two-time Nobel Peace Prize winner, he, he said this, you know, that science is the seeking of truth. And, and, and we need to be open then. What is truth? What is truth in the realm of science? And what if science would actually point to the existence of God? Would we be open to such a thing? Um, well, let's, let's discover this today, and let's go into it. Now, Look at this next, next slide here, and, and this really lays out where we're going to go in the few minutes we have together. And by the way, this is an overwhelming agenda when you come, come to what we have to cover today. And we're going to do the best we can. And I, I do this only to just give you a sampling and, a, and hopefully a thirst for more because there's so much more to learn about this. And uh, some great resources that are out there include uh, Lee Strobel. Uh, his book called a, a Case for the Creator, Lee Strobel, a former atheist who actually came to faith by studying the evidence of creation and, and God's truth in his word. Um, he's got an incredible story. Another one out there we're going to allude to today is a, a book by Michael Behe called um, um, Darwin's Black Box. We'll look at that a little more too in, in helpful resources. But let, let's get into this. We're going to see the, the scientific evidence in paleontology, chemistry, cosmology or astronomy, physics, and biology. Sound fun? Let's do it. Let's go. Take a look at this. Scientific evidence of paleontology. And the paleontology, of course, is the study of, 
of fossils and the fossil record and, and taking a look at, at history from geology and, and what we can learn from the earth and, and, and fossilized animals that were uh, placed inside stones in times of stress, in times of, of uh, geological changes and what we can learn from that fossil record. Um, there's someone quite famous in this whole discussion that needs to be put up here pretty quickly and, and that's uh, Charles Darwin. You may recognize his picture. Uh, he lived in the, in the 19, 19th century, in the 1800s. Uh, Charles Darwin uh, had a lot to talk about and a lot of thoughts and ideas. And one of his most famous, as he wrote it in The Origin of the Species, which was his famous work, was that all of everything of the created order that we know, and he wouldn't use the word created order, of the natural world exists from a, a single source, that it all began and from one source, and then it, it started to become what he called the tree of life. And this is one of his first drawings to describe what that tree of life was, that all plants, all animals had a single source of beginning, and that evolution, and the evolutionary process with enough time and chance uh, would bring about life as we know it which has come known as the, the theory of evolution, which really isn't taught as a theory anymore. It is widely accepted within the scientific world and taught as such that it is fact. Or is it? See, Darwin said that when we study paleontology, his, his thoughts were that the more we study it, the more we would see that this tree of life really forms life as we know it. And, and the, the key there then is you need a lot of time because it's, it's kind of like a... You know, take a watch apart and put all the parts in a, in a box, start shaking it, and hopefully if you shake it long enough, all the parts will come back together and you'll have a working watch that's ticking. Um, I say that because that just seems highly improbable, doesn't it? And, and that's even assuming you got the parts to start with. And, and for Darwin, it meant even going further back is the origins of life is how did it all get started? And he didn't have all the answers to that. But what his, his equation was is that it, it was given enough time and chance and accidents and, and the survival of the fittest, basically, that, that things that work in nature will win out and win the day through uh, mutation and change and, and, and morphing through time. We will have what we see as a tree of life. Now, if you look at this, the next one, what you would expect on the left from the fossil record according to what Darwin pictured and, and, and imagined would be the case, as more and more discoveries would be made, is that you would find fossils of different things. Like toward the bottom, you'd find more microscopic type things and animals and the beginnings of them, like pond swine, that this, this mordic soup from all that, that just came about and through lightning strikes and what would, would form life out of amino acids and those would, would grow and grow and grow and soon you'd, you'd have like a tadpole type creatures that eventually would develop arms and legs and would crawl out of the water and then they'd develop a fur and an ability to breathe on land and, and, and through time and circumstance that all life forms would come all the way to where we are today with all the different phylas of, of, of spe species and, and categories of life. This tree of life that Darwin pictured. What I find fascinating is from what I read and learn from, uh, from those that are paleontologists is when they make a discovery, what they then do is they take that discovery and then they try to make it fit on the tree of life somewhere. And, and, and they fit it there. Oh, this must be where it goes. Again, going off of what Darwin theorized, they go back and say, okay, it fits here. And, and the problem is, 
is that what we've discovered from the fossil record is it's very little of the bottom. There's, there's no like connecting branches. It's, it looks more like the, one, the illustration on the right. And those lines are placed in different order there only because to make them try and fit into Darwin's idea, you put those straight lines there, but they're not curving lines. They're not branches branching off. Oh, we do see, and this is important as, as believers in, in creation, often we, we could say, oh, you don't believe in any evolution? Well, there is some evolution that is observed, but it's called microevolution. Within the species, say in the, the species of dogs or the species of birds, there is observed evolution, microevolution within the species. There's, there's morphing and changing that goes on. That is observed. But you don't find, say, some of these leaps that create branches that stream out from a single source of life. It's as if it all just starts at the top. There's something that was discovered some years ago that, that blew the lid off of this and, and had everybody scratching their heads and believed in evolution, and that was the Cambrian explosion. Because what they, they discovered in China, among other places, was a period in time where the fossil record goes from really nothing to all of a sudden an explosion of all the life forms of all the phyla are all represented instantaneously. Now, how is that possible if they evolved? Or were they created, as Genesis would say, quite suddenly by the voice and the will of God? That's a question. Now, Darwinian theory would say, well, you can't go there because God doesn't exist. And we need to understand that when we talk about this, is that when you talk to someone who believes solidly in Darwin's theory, they're coming from a standpoint that God can't be part of the equation. He has to be written off. And that's a challenge if you're a believer and you say, well, I believe in the evolution and I believe in God. Actually, Darwin's theory actually excludes God completely. He says it all happens by chance. There's nothing of order. There is nothing that comes about by any outside force. So to believe in God is actually to believe the opposite of Darwin. It's interesting. Just, just I challenge some of you a little bit today. Um, but there's the fossil record, and we see these straight lines in the fossil record. That's paleontology. Let's take a look at this next slide as we get into chemistry. And again, I'm giving you a smattering of, of thoughts here today. Scientific evidence from chemistry. There's a man that's pictured here. Um, interesting guy. This is going back to 1953. Uh, his name is Stanley Miller. And, and Stanley Miller made what seemed to be an incredible discovery that may support what Darwin had to say. What Stanley Miller did was he put several different chemicals in an experimental situation here, he put uh, ammonia and methane and a little bit of, of water vapor and uh, one other chemical, I forget what it was, hydrogen, I believe, and, and he put it into this experimental uh, setup and, and then he added a spark, uh, an ongoing charge that was meant to uh, signify lightning and, and recreate what could have happened way back in, in, in the early, early, early times before there any, was anything in this kind of mortal soup that, that existed, what would happen, he thought, if lightning that would have been present there and these chemicals, was it possible that the building blocks of life, amino acids, could come about? Now, he let this go for several days, and he came back, and his experiment came out to prove true. He was able to demonstrate in the bottom of this, this collecting basin there were actually building blocks of amino acids there. 
And, and for years, I mean, this blew the lid off of science and say, hey, Darwin's got to be right. There was a beginning here by a natural process of chance that could have happened. And, and this seemed to prove everything. Lee Strobel was in high school reading about this and, and, uh, and, and he's sitting there and, and learning this and he, he realized, you know what? It's got to be true. And, and that's where he became an atheist, was in a, a biology classroom learning about the chemical reactions that, that, that uh, Stanley Miller discovered. The thing is, though, is that some years later, this, this experiment fell apart because they realized the building blocks that would have been present actually in the very beginning um, doesn't work. He had the wrong equation, the wrong mixture, and, and when they used the actual mixture that they, they figured out with greater science, it didn't work. It never works. It doesn't work. And so the whole experiment fell apart. You know, some would say, regardless of whether it fell apart or stayed together, even if you have amino acids, you don't have life. There was so much more that would be involved than even just that. This is one of the, the, the turning points for Lee Strobel, too, when he rediscovered that this experiment actually didn't work, and yet it was still being taught as if that was proof. It got him to questioning and being skeptical. You know, th there's been recent discoveries on this, too, and I, I will say this, that, and this goes, too, with paleontology as well, that, that some years ago, 600 scientists from major universities from around the world uh, we're talking Yale, Harvard, and some of the, those well-known places, uh, all signed a similar petition, and, and they, they sent it out to the scientific community saying, we have doubts, serious doubts of, and, and serious skepticism over the whole Darwinian view of neo-Darwinism and evolution. And you don't always hear about that because it's not mainstream. It gets pushed aside. It's not where the financial side of things is and the research is, and, and it, you can get ridiculed as a scientist if you take that stand. But there's a lot of those who are doubting more and more, not based on theology, but simply based on the evidence, on science. Yeah. Let's go a little further with this. Um, you know, this is a great quote from Robert Boyle, the father of, of modern chemistry. He says this, from, from a knowledge of God's work, we shall know him. Do you think that would be popular today? Probably not. But all to say, many brilliant people throughout the centuries have believed in God and believed that science actually reveals more of who God is. Let's go on to another topic here, scientific evidence of cosmology. This gets pretty amazing and exciting. Let's take a look at this picture or this quote. You know, the, Psalm, 1, or Psalm 19, we read this earlier. Let's read it together. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. You know, what, what David's writing there, and you might say, well, without any scientific data, what's his scientific data? Just staring at the multitude of stars and being blown away with how incredibly huge this is, even if he didn't understand all of it. David prophetically saying, the heavens declare the wonders, the glory of God. Is it possible by studying the stars and studying the, the heavens and the science behind that, we can learn more about God. I think definitely. Let's take a look at this. Here's a great picture. And here you have the, the universe as we know it pictured there. Now, what was understood, if you go back even 100 years before Albert Einstein, it was widely accepted that the universe was static. In other words, it was still. It wasn't moving. It wasn't expanding or contracting. That it, it just was. And that perhaps it had always been. That it was actually eternal was the mindset. 
Well, when Albert Einstein comes along and he works on his theory of relativity and, and, and looks at that, what his discovery brought about was the possibility that his, his equations seemed to prove that the universe was actually expanding. And at the time, Albert Einstein didn't like that result because it didn't go against the, or went against the mainstream and, and he didn't like the result. He thought, this can't be right. And yet just a few years later in Belgium, another scientist upheld that theory in terms of the universe expanding. And then you get to 1929 and Edward Hubble, uh, who was doing his research out in Los Angeles in the observatory out there, truly affirmed scientifically that the universe is actually expanding. And what he discovered was the rate of expansion and the speed of the expansion, uh, the, the speed was greater for those stars and galaxies that were further out were actually going away at a faster rate than those that were closer. And what it proved was is that the galaxies and, and the universe as we know it actually had a beginning that you could like take it like a movie projector and and re-roll the tape and go backwards and you could actually bring it back to a starting point the data proved it scientifically so much so that there is no scientist anymore that that would doubt or dispute that the universe had a beginning and a lot of times that just gets dismissed well that's science well yeah it's science does it remind you of anything of a God who says that in the beginning he said, let there be, and it was. It shouldn't surprise us. All to say you don't have to check your intellect in the door to believe that there's a beginning to the universe. Science supports that. Now, it goes further than that. You know, beyond this, you, there's some, some other elements to this. We get into the, relative, or the area of physics, and um, here's a couple examples of physics that blows you away. Um, anybody know what this equation is? This is gravitational force. I didn't know that until yesterday. Okay, that's, that's the equation for it. Maybe I learned that a long time ago. Um, but this is the equation for gravitational force. If you were to take the gravitational force that we live with here on Earth, and then let's just say on a continuum, you spread out a, a tape measure in inch increments across the entire universe as we know it. Uh, we're talking like a billion light years or so. I mean, across the universe as we know it, inch by inch by inch by inch by inch. And, and if you put on that continuum where our gravitational force lines up on that particular inch, which is incredible to think about on this continuum, do you know that if you moved our gravitational force either an inch to the greater or an inch to the lesser, do you know it would be impossible today? It would be impossible for us to be alive. Life as we know it would start to break apart. Um, that's just one of many uh, things that are unbelievable when you get into the science and the, the physics of what God has put together. What, what they observe is, is that there's an incredible tuning involved with the universe. Um, here's another example of this beyond gravity. Um, the cosmological constant, there's one for you. Um, it is a, the speed of expansion of the universe. We mentioned that, that this, the universe is expanding. If you take that speed, that's what it comes down to. That's the number that, that scientists can, can rate the speed of expansion. And the thing is, is that it is so highly tuned, they've been able to also figure out that if it was just slightly increased or slightly decreased, life as we know it would not be possible. Um, put that in an, another word picture for you. It, it's like going up into outer space 100 miles 
and taking a dart and throwing it toward the earth and hitting a target on earth, on the ground, that's a trillionth of a trillionth of an inch big and hitting it dead on. That's how highly tuned all of this is. These are just two of, of physicists that are blown away that makes life possible here on earth and some of the other e equations of, of the makeup of oxygen and water and land mass and, and gravitational force and the axis that involves the moon and, and how it's highly tuned that makes life here possible. When life in and of itself by chance and accident would be highly improbable if not impossible and that's why you think of time and circumstance within the, the evolutionary theories is you got to throw all this at it and, and in that hope that maybe one day somehow well, how could it possibly happen when it is so incredibly tuned? What is this pointing to? Is it pointing to life as we know it is all the result of chance, or is it possible there's something behind it? Others have noticed too and, and noted quite well that where we are positioned within the universe is really significant because we are in the exact location where life is possible. In many other places, it wouldn't be possible at all, but we're also positioned in a place that it is open to discovery, that we can see the universe, we can explore it, that our atmosphere is light enough that at night we can look through it and ponder it. Why is it that way? It didn't have to be that way unless there's someone inviting us to investigate and learn. A God who welcomes discovery. Could it be? Now, let's go on to the next one. Scientific evidence of biology. I love this. This gets exciting. Take a look at this next slide. Um, anybody know what this is? I, I'm not going to ask you that. It's, it's a bacterial fl flagellum is what it's called. And uh, it's a very well-known uh, microbiology thing. I mean, this thing's alive. And, and this bacterial flagellum is a pretty amazing thing. Um, there's a man by the name of Michael Behe. I alluded to him. Uh, he is a biochemist and has, has just found it intriguing to study um, this, among other things, bacterial flagellum, because as he studied it and started to pull it apart on the micro level, uh, what he discovered was it actually has a lot of resemblance to an outboard motor. In fact, if you pull it apart, look at this, the makeups of this thing. Um, you've got a propeller, a universal joint, you've got bushings, you've got stators, you've got a drive shaft and a rotor, and this whole thing works, and it actually has the ability to go from zero to a thousand RPMs instantaneously, then it can stop, reverse, and back up. And it has sensors on it that it can sense other flagellum that are near it and, and stay away from it and back up and move forward. And, and its ability to maneuver, and, and how does it maneuver? Because of these incredible parts that all work together. It's like an automotive factory. And, and, and the design that's involved with this what Michael Behe has discovered is if you take any of the 40 working parts, moving parts, that make a flagellum work, take one part away, the whole thing falls apart. It doesn't work. It fails to work at all. And the whole idea of evolutionary biology is that it came about by chance, accidentally, by trial and error, and that, that eventually, through time and circumstances, something developed. The problem is, is when you get to a machine like this, you take one part away, it doesn't work. It would have been rejected. I'll give you another example. You may recognize this contraption. It's the common mouse trap. And what Michael Behe has said, we're talking about irreducible complexity here. If you take any one part away from a mouse trap, 
It won't work. It's useless. It doesn't work. It's just, and that's what we're observing more and more in biology is you have these complicated, sophisticated machines that you take one part away and it doesn't work. How can you possibly say it came together little by little by little modifications here and there? He says, that is not what we observe. What we rather observe is that we have complicated machines that are capable of doing things that we never ever fathomed. And the idea that, that Darwin said it just came about by chance, he was working not with this information. It hadn't been discovered yet. In fact, this isn't even to mention DNA today. That's a whole other topic. Of, we haven't even found a computer that is as sophisticated as the discovery of DNA and the information that it holds. You can put all of, all of humanity and all of the living things in the entire world and their DNA on a teaspoon. You want to talk about nanotechnology? And you'd still have room for all of the books and everything that's ever been written to be coded in the same technology. Are you kidding me? Where does this come from? You know, sometimes uh, it's been noted that well, we've tried to explain that chemically with chemistry, and, and that's as much as taking a newspaper and explaining how the ink sticks to the paper. It doesn't explain the technology behind it or the information that's shared. How do you explain this if you don't believe there's a designer behind it? Interesting. Irreducible complexity. Take one of the 40 parts away, it doesn't work. Let me show one quote to you here to end from Charles Darwin himself, it comes right out of Origin of Species. He says, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would, be, would absolutely break down. Huh. Huh. Let's pray. Lord God, you reveal yourself. And the creation you have created is so incredibly organized and, and so sophisticated and so well-tuned and, and in order. It declares your glory. It declares that you exist. Lord, we live in a day and age where that is under attack constantly, where people choose to, to explain you away. And Lord, that will always be the case. But for us who revealed and, and learned your, your, your knowledge that re, you reveal in your scripture as those who've been called by you. Lord, may we be people who share that incredible truth and do so in whimsical ways with gentleness and respect to realize, Lord, we don't have to check our intellect in at the door to believe in you as creator. You've revealed it as such. And what an incredible proof that you are a God not only who, who creates, but a God who keeps his word. And that promise is one who answers that ultimate longing in our hearts and souls of unbelief that gets exchanged for faith through your truth and your love and grace through us, through Jesus. Lord, bless us in that. More and more we pray as you live now and always. Amen.